This is Solana the Refused. I'm Rob Trasinski. I'm My guest today is Amesh Adalja, and he's a uh, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and I'm talking to him about the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the first big question, the sort of overarching question people want to know is, are people panicking about this? It's a That's a hard question to ask because there are definitely people that are panicking and they are hoarding certain materials in their house. They are buying masks that they don't need. They're wearing gloves when they probably don't work for the general public. But there is – that's one end of it. But there is a difference between panicking and being proactively ready for a pandemic and trying to take steps to minimize your risk and the risk to those that you uh, that you care about. And I think that that's sometimes hard to do from a media perspective or even as an infectious disease doctor trying to talk to people about what to do without panicking them, but with getting them proactively ready for something that will likely be severe and disruptive, but won't necessarily kill them, but may kill people that they know and, and kill people that are high risk and really uh, put the U.S. healthcare system into a, a surge mode where we may end up having a capacity problem. Right, the surge mode is, I think, the important thing. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what the, the magnitude of the risk is, get some ideas of, of what's going on here. And, and the big question, I think, is how is this different from the seasonal flu? Is it in terms of how contagious is it, how many people are going to get it, and, and especially the mortality rates? Okay, so starting with this, you know, this is a novel coronavirus. We have other coronaviruses, but this is a new one that was discovered that can infect humans. And this because of that fact, there is not much cross-immunity to it. That means that most individuals who are exposed to it are going to get infected. And we know back from 2009 to which is when a novel flu virus was discovered, that about 20% of the world's population got infected. So we can right. take that as kind of the lower limit. So this is going to be, you know, 30 to 50% of people are going to be infected over, the, over a period of about a year or so is what, what I think is the most likely scenario. That's as opposed to something that with a variation on an existing virus that's been around, so a lot of people have some degree of immunity to it. Exactly. This this doesn't have we don't have population immunity or herd immunity to this, and that's why you're seeing high what we call attack rates. That this can mm -hmm. infect a lot of people. It doesn't mean a lot of people are going to that people, majority of cases are going to again be mild, but that that's a lot of people getting infected, and even. Even if the majority are mild, the ones that are not mild, that need hospitalizations, that need ICU care, that's what we're worried about, burdening our hospitals. And that's what we're really preparing for. That's what all of this is about is, is that group of people, not the ones that, that just have mild symptoms, although those with mild symptoms can then transmit it to their, the grand, their right. grandparents or their friends. And, and then so that's what this is all about, kind of this, this uh, idea of bending the curve. And you asked about the mortality, and this, this has kind of been a, a controversial subject because we don't quite know exactly where to put this because there's something called a case fatality ratio, and, and we're trying to understand what percentage of people who get infected die from this. And that's a number that you can only say with accuracy when you have full capture of what this disease's spectrum of illness is. And when our testing in the United States and all over the world is skewed towards people who are hospitalized or are coming to a healthcare facility, you're getting a lower denominator because you're not testing the mild cases, the people who may just have a runny nose. So you can see wide differences in the CFR based on that. So, for example, in Hubei province in China, the CFR might be 3 to 4%. But outside of Hubei province, it drops to lower than 1% in some places. And in places like South Korea, where they've done extensive testing, the CFR is around 0.85 or so percent. So it's very different based on that testing. But we do know, even if you take a lower bound of 0 0.085, or, if you think, or anything in that 0 0.6, 0 0.7, if it, even if we figure it out it's lower than 0 0.85, that's still about eight times worse than the season, the worst seasonal flus that we have. 
Right. So that is looking at about point one percent. And and you mentioned the issue novel it's a novel virus. And that's really important. It means it's totally new, and it means you don't have a lot of information about it. And exactly. so we're sort of, you're sort of figuring out what it is. But it's looking like point, with the regular flu, they have great estimates, and they have a lot of experience making estimates about how many people actually get infected versus how many people uh, then for whom it's fatal. Whereas here, you don't have good information, but it's looking like it's, it's significantly like on the order of one order of magnitude higher than the seasonal flu. Right, and remember, during a severe seasonal flu uh, outbreak, for example, 2017 to 2018, our hospitals are really stressed where you're triaging people in the parking lots, and right. that's important to remember. So th we're not equipped in our hospital systems to be able to deal with this type of an influx of patients, and that's what people are really worried about. If we have anything approaching what we're hearing about in the northern part of Italy, it could be uh, disastrous, and, and it's unclear that, that what's going on there, but if that type of scenario happens, we don't have that kind of, we don't have the ability to increase ICU bed capacity. Right. So let me be more specific about that because what's going on is, from what I understand, that, you know, like 90, 80 to 90% of the people who get this uh, COVID-19, this new flu, uh, uh, new virus, it's relatively mild. It's like the cold, regular cold or flu, but for 10 to 20%, it's very severe. And for like half of those people or maybe a little under half of those people, it actually requires intensive care hospitalization. It requires being on a ventilator. And that's the real rub of this, which is that five, you know, let's say 60 million people in the U.S. get it. You have 3 million people who need intensive care. That is a huge overwhelming of, of the system, and that's what's going on in Italy. Right, exactly. And that's that's what we're worried about, an, an intense transmission that causes hospitals to go above their capacity, unable to meet that capacity and then basically have kind of a systemic failure at the hospitals. And that's what, when you hear about bending the curve, what that means is kind of a euphemism for just instead of having this really high spike, this really high peak, maybe making it more smoother and come up more gradually. Maybe the area under the curve, meaning the number of cases is the same, but if they occur over a longer period of time and never exceed the capacity of the hospital, they stay below hospital capacity, then I think we'll be okay. So that's why you're seeing aggressive social distancing being performed here in the United States, kind of following the South Korean example where they haven't had that type of disruption because they were pretty good at identifying people that were infected and isolating them so they couldn't transmit to other people, and they've been able to kind of keep their curve down. And some of what China did, they did a lot of bad things, but if you piece out what, what was actual proper public health things to do was ident uh, identification of cases and isolating them, not all of the internal travel bans and the, the free speech suppression or the military people at the rail at the internal travel controls of the internal the military people at the train stations that that's not the right thing to do but actually finding cases and then keeping them away from other people while they're contagious that that's the core principle of public health and that's what really will work and that's why we're trying the social distancing in the United States and, and maybe it's uh, maybe it's going to have some impact maybe it's not but we need, we'll know in the next couple of weeks I think right now, what I'm also seeing in the US is that we've been very slow to do the South Korean solution, which is aggressively testing. Test everybody, find the people who have that, isolate the people who have it so they keep from spreading it. The testing hasn't really gotten off the ground or is just now getting off the ground in the U.S. Right. So what happened with the testing was that initially this was something that the CDC was performing. And that's one part of it, that there was obviously a supply constraint. When you only have one lab doing it, they're going to get backlogged. And the other issue was that the testing guidance was really premised on the fact that this was a travel-related illness, at least that's how it was conceptualized by many people, that you had to have traveled to China. But we knew that this virus had been spreading since November in China, 
and it's a respiratory spreading virus that spreads efficiently between humans. So that means that it's not going to respect borders. And you give a virus like that a head start, it's going to be everywhere. So we knew even when we first started thinking and hearing about this, that there were going to be more cases there, just like we knew during 2009 H1N1 that when we saw cases in Mexico, that there would be cases everywhere, and it wasn't going to be something that was restricted to just travel to Mexico. However, that guidance kind of persisted, and it kind of got seared into people's minds, including doctors' minds and hospital administrators' minds. So many tests were not ordered on people, and even if they were, they would have been backlogged. Then the CDC tried to put out their, their test to the different state labs that were out there, and that was kind of a really failed rollout because there were some problems with those test kits, which then delayed it. And again, we're having a massive capacity problem. Then you have this other paradoxical thing that happens. We have a public health emergency declared, and by definition, that makes things easier usually for manufacturers of vaccines and medications. But, but on the other hand, it makes it harder for diagnostic companies because in a normal era, there's not any regulation of what are called laboratory-derived tests or laboratory-developed tests. LDTs that big hospitals can make and companies like Quest and LabCorp can make, and those tests are used all the time on people on their own patients, and they don't go through FDA regulation. But during a public health emergency, they end up having to go through emergency regulations, and that basically paralyzed them to make things quickly because they had to, to make them in such a manner that they would pass FDA muster, and that slows things down. And then that's just been, a, you know, kind of a, a major uh, rollout problem of these tests. And at the same time, you, you have administrators and hospitals being very wary of their doctors just ordering the test because they don't know what to do. They, they're not, they don't really know what to do with these patients if they get them because they, they may end up exposing a lot of people in their, in their hospital because maybe the test, the test kit wasn't collected properly and people got exposed when they were testing mm -hmm. it. And then that becomes like a cascading failure. So hospital administrators tell doctors, if you're ordering a test, we want to know about it and we want to adjudicate that test. So it's not seamless like the way a doctor can order an HIV test, for example. They put a lot of barriers into our testing, and and then you have the, the federal bureaucracy that happens with that rollout, and then you have the, the little hospital politics that, that play, play a role. And it's really a, a recipe um, for disaster when it comes to, to diagnostic testing. And we never thought that when you look at pandemic preparedness, we all thought the diagnostics are really important, but we never thought that's where our failure would be would be in, uh -huh. in diagnostic testing. And now we're left with no situational awareness in the United States, and that's why you're seeing all these closures kind of almost one size fits all because we don't know what's spreading in the community because we don't have any testing done to know how much which communities are impacted more than others and where they are in each of the community's epidemic curves. It strikes me that because of the testing problems, we aren't able to do the South Korean solution, so we're doing the more draconian version of the Chinese solution, which is shut everything down. Yeah, that's, that's one thing. You know, South Korea could just say, we know you've got it because you went through our drive-thru, we tested you, so you stay home and don't expose other people for 14 days. We don't have that luxury. So right now you kind of have to assume that anybody that has a respiratory tract infection has this virus, and, and many of them probably do. And, we, and, and there's no way to have these kind of nuanced solutions that are kind of par perfectly targeted. You have to kind of do this pretty aggressively, especially you know, with word of what's going on in Italy, if, that, if that, that's actually true. People are really worried about this exceeding hospital capacity and, uh, and, and that we are going to have a, a much harder time than we thought because people assume that we would be able to, to do a South Korean type solution, but our diagnostic testing has not allowed us to do it. So that explains why, you know, like I, like just about everybody, has been getting a, a steady stream of calls and emails in the last couple of days of this is being canceled and that's being canceled and your kids are going to be home for the next three weeks and all of that. And that's, we're doing that because we weren't able to do that South Korean solution. Um, right, so, because we, yeah, we, we miss a lot of we miss a lot of transmission chains that are that are out there that are just not not come to notice because we don't have any way to test them. 
exactly. So that's what we're talking about what government did and what it failed to do. What should individuals be doing? Well, right now, individuals should be you know, not panicking. They need to be cognizant of the risk to them might be very small individually, but they may be inadvertently become a transmission belt for this virus into uh, someone that could have a hard time. So they, they, mm-hmm. I think it, it is really good to be mindful about what you're doing socially and trying to minimize uh, your social contacts as much as you can. Uh, we know this is going to be disruptive to people's lives, and each person has their own hierarchy of, of what they think is important to them and, and what's essential and what's non-essential to them. But we want people to start being mindful about it, especially if you're elderly or you have other medical problems. Maybe not attend mass gatherings. Maybe try and minimize your non-essential travel. Uh, maybe find ways to modify your activities uh, so that you are less exposed to people. So let's talk about the no-contact greetings. I've been trying to get people to adopt the Vulcan hand uh, hand gesture, uh, the Vulcan salute. But, you know, the non-contact greetings so that you are not touching people and passing things on that way. Right. That's that's definitely one thing that you can do. And, you know, washing your hands as much as possible, touching your face as as, as least as you can, which is sometimes very hard for people. And then just kind of thinking about, can you work from home? Can you do other things right. from home? Do you, do you really have to be there in person? And I think we'll know maybe in two weeks or so if this is going to work. And I think by that time we'll have some idea of if we're, what kind of trajectory we're having. If we start hearing about ICUs, ICU patients, emergency department crowding, we will start to know that probably within the next week or so, which is, a, you know, which is kind of a scary prospect that this is all gonna, we're all going to see this soon um, and, and have an answer. But I think um, th- this is something that, we, we've been predicting happening. We, we were ripe for a pandemic, and, and I think that this is what we're, we're seeing right now. Well, I, 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 one of the things I, you know, I know you've been you've been tremendously busy the last week. You know that your your field of expertise is suddenly greatly in demand as someone to, to tell people what's going on here. I want to ask a question. Maybe you haven't been getting because everybody's been talking about the next couple of weeks. What's the long term end game on this? I mean, what does this look like a year, a year and a half now, are, from now? Are we basically going to con- try to contain the spread of this thing, slow it down enough until we get a vaccine, or what, or until we get herd immunity built up, or what? You know, what is the long term end game for how this all ends up? So it's a, lot, a little bit of a combination of all of that. So coronaviruses tend to exhibit some seasonality in temperate climates, so we may see some dampening of the transmission, not completely, but but maybe significantly as we it get is, into it warmer is going months. On in a, it is going on in Australia where it's, it's late summer. Right. So, in, 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 so we will see. It's not going to be ironclad because there's no population immunity to, to help with that kind of seasonality. But there are coronaviruses that do exhibit seasonality that spike in the, in the, in the colder months and go away in right. the summer. Not completely. Okay. And we may see some of that. But I do think that this coronavirus is going to be with us for some time, that this has made itself endemic in the human population. We're going to see uh, a large proportion of the human population infected. And it will likely probably hit us again in, in, in the fall next year, mixed right. in with flu season, which could be very harrowing. And I think that the only solution to this is going to be a vaccine, which we're accelerating in development, but this is going to take some time. Vaccine de- development is measured in years, not in months. And that's going to be the only way really that we can control this infectious disease like it's been the way that we control any infectious disease. So I do think that we're going to face, face this for some time. I do think it will dampen as we get herd immunity, that it won't be the same threat as more and more people get infected, but we are going to be in for likely a rough first wave. Okay. Uh, so basically what we're seeing is that eventually what will happen is so many people either had the virus and already have antibodies to it, or they've had the vaccine, that it can't get going as a pandemic anymore because there just aren't enough people who are able to spread it. Right. It's not going to have enough, enough victims that it can use to, to spread in this kind of manner. 
Okay. Well, I appreciate your taking the time. I know you're tremendously busy right now. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Sure, anytime. Uh, and my guest today has been Amesh Adalja, uh, infectious disease specialist and uh, an expert on the coronavirus spread. Thank you for listening. <laughs>